Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends uh, get together and talk about movies. This theme, we've been talking about movies that have had us return back to the theater uh, and we've seen over and over. And we're going to continue that, round out that theme with my pick. But before we dive into it, want to just do a pulse check. How's everyone doing uh, have you guys, I know pulse check sounds a little bit, um, corporate <laughs> and morbid at the same time, morbid, and corporate. <laughs> but how's everyone doing? Have you guys seen anything good recently? Seen anything bad recently? Christine pulse check is weirdly appropriate for what I have been spending a lot of my time watching. Perfect. Which is this, the A&E YouTube channel and they have compilations of their fire rescues. So literally that has been what I've been watching uh, night after night, video after video of just firefighters, EMTs, just saving people's lives. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know how this happened, but here I am. And honestly, now I'm I'm super invested. I'm here. I'm in it to win it. Um, I've been to Patterson, New Jersey. I've been to San Bernardino, California, to Mesa, Arizona. You name it. I have watched firefighters saved the day there i guarantee it is it always a happy ending no <laughs> oh wow um, yeah wow um i have a ton of respect for firefighters just going in there and saving the day putting their yeah i mean the heat uh, yeah right yeah <laughs> <laughs> I uh, didn't know if you guys knew, but firefighters actually handle heat on a daily basis. We all learn something new every day. Um, all right, Connor, Dave, what's uh, what's on your mind? I went to the movies recently um, in person to see Jordan Peele's Nope. Finally got around to seeing it. Um, and I thought it was really good. Really enjoyed it. It stuck with me. Uh, right when it ended, I was like, all right, like give me five and then run it again. Like I, I, I'll sit, I would sit down and watch it again. It's a hard movie to talk about without spoiling it and just kind of like maybe not ruining it, but certainly taking away a lot of the fun surprises, interesting surprises. Yeah, I think just Jordan Peele just has a really great sense of tone. I think rides that really fine line of like humor, suspense, tension. Um, I think he rides that line really well really well-performed movie, well-acted, uh, and the soundscape and the sound design was just absolutely incredible. Um, for our awards in the winter when we come to Best Use of Sound, I, I, it would be very difficult for a movie to come out and beat Nope uh, for how the, the sound is used and how the sound design works. So definitely recommend seeing you Nope. Know, maybe we'll talk about it on the podcast one day in the future. I would certainly... Uh, it's a movie that I would love to break down. I feel like there's a, quite a few, you know, when I see a movie, it's like, oh, this would be a great butter with that movie. Um, so, nope, definitely felt like one of those. Nice. Yeah, I really want to see it um, and hopefully catch it in the theaters. Uh, cool. How about you, Dave? Well, on the subject of catching things in theaters, this past week, I had the uh, bucket list pleasure of going to see, not the bucket list, but uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, uh, the Toby Hoover film, uh, which we've discussed before on the show, very early into our uh, our run and our history. Uh, seeing it on the big screen was uh, a pretty mind-bending experience. I've always had the experience of seeing it on a TV, never had the pleasure or the opportunity. Seeing it on the big screen was great. I mean, I was able to really bask in uh, how well shot the film is. Uh, Daniel Pearl, the cinematographer, really knocks it out of the park. Uh, in my approximation and reappraisal of the movie every time, but it really brought it to new heights seeing it like for like, you know, 30 feet across and everything. Also, the sound was piercing. For some reason, this mix, it was a, it's a new 4K restoration that just came out. So visually, it was spectacular. But the sound, it was so loud seeing it in the theater. And I'd never really 
I, I found the movie like threatening and and scary as a kid just because of its insanity. But I was never necessarily afraid of the chainsaw as a weapon until you see it in a theater when like suddenly like it, the every other sound in the movie is like put to shame by just a blaring chainsaw. Uh, it was fantastic. Um, and then tomorrow, uh, as of this recording, I'm going to see another of my favorite movies, uh, Mad Max Road Warrior. So uh, I'll be doing that tomorrow. It's been a really great couple weeks going to the movies. We should uh, recommend go see those movies if you're in the Philadelphia area and then go listen to our episodes on those two movies. Yeah, well, Indeed. by the time that this uh, will air, uh, both of them will have already screened. But uh, oh, go look well, into never the uh, Philadelphia Film Society. They, they run a lot of really great programming and have great curation. Um, yeah, I've seen several hosted by them and they have always good lineups. Uh, I recently watched, in addition to the movie we're talking about today, a little-known classic called Diplomatic Siege, starring Peter Weller and Daryl Hannah. <laughs> I can't say it well. Dave, I feel like I'd recommend this movie to you. Okay. I was introduced to a new movie selection game, which was essentially uh, using a random word generator to give you a word and then you look that word up on Tubi and whatever word matches or whatever title matches the word that the random word generator has selected, you must watch. So Diplomatic Siege it was. And uh, it, uh, Peter Weller is just non-acting. Daryl Hannah is non-acting. And there's just an implausibly long sequence of explosions that go on in an embassy in Bucharest. While Peter Weller's character and Daryl Hannah are two uh, government liaisons trying to find a bomb in the basement. So I think you can draw the conclusions just from the synopsis about what quality of movie it is. But if you're interested, why not? Uh, It's an interesting time capsule of 1994's depictions of government liaisons post-Cold War in uh, Eastern Europe. So there's that. Anyhow, that um, sounds kind of great. That actually does sound like something I like. Dave, I kind of thought of you when we were watching it because I was like, I feel like I couldn't recommend this to anyone, maybe but you. <laughs> uh, switching gears to a movie that is probably the antithesis of Diplomatic Siege, we're going to talk about today's selection, which is uh, 1998's Ever After directed by Andy Tennant. Please don't look up what else have, uh, other movies he's done because you'll uh, it'll discredit <laughs> this movie. I'm going to do um, that right now. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll just throw one out. Fool's Gold, the classic. Uh-huh. Starring um, Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. Anyhow, directed by Andy Tennant, starring the amazing Drew Barrymore, Starring Doug Gray Scott, who no one really knows except for playing the bad guy in Mission Impossible 2. The inimitable Angelica Houston. Uh, Melanie Linsky, uh, who's just blowing up right now. I've always loved her, but it's always fun to see uh, people that are really at the height of their career in smaller roles of the past. And he, in no way, is a starring role, but a young Toby Jones, who I always just love. Um, oh, yeah, It Takes Two, Sweet Home Alabama, just, yeah, Andy Tennant <laughs> was kind of the king of bad romance of the early aughts and late 90s. So a little synopsis for those who have never seen Ever After. It's basically the Cinderella story, but set in 15th century France. So the main character, or the Cinderella, is Danielle de Barbarac who's played by Drew Barrymore, who essentially uh, falls from landed gentry to peasant farmer when her father dies and leaves her under the care of her cruel stepmother, Baroness Rodmilla de Ghent, played by Angelica Houston. Rodmilla de Ghent is such an intense name, uh, as well as her two uh, evil stepsisters. Uh, uh, Danielle crossed paths with the Prince of France, Henry, played by Doug Ray Scott, when she goes to court to free one of the family's servants from servitude. And then slowly over the course of the movie, they fall in love. But of course, there has to be drama. 
the drama is, comes from the fact that Danielle is not did not introduce herself to the prince as her servant self, but goes as a cover of her mother, who was a courtier. And drama ensues. And then Leonardo da Vinci enters the picture and turns into the character of the fairy, essentially the fairy godmother. So there's that. Uh, essentially French Cinderella. Why did I pick this movie? Uh, well, we've been talking about movies that had us return to the theaters and that uh, we've seen a lot. This movie I saw with my mom at least twice in the theaters. Uh, I think I think my mom really loved this. Or I know my mom loves this movie, but I think we saw it less because in the theaters I was obsessed with it, but she was kind of obsessed with it. And then we got the DVD and then slowly I became obsessed with it and pretty much know most of the screenplay. So I, one of my first notes was this movie shouldn't work, but somehow possibly does. Like on paper, by all accounts, this movie shouldn't work. But I, I, I actually want to just throw it back to Sam, Connor, and David. And they're David. Dave, I'm just reading oh what's gosh. on your... David! David Samson is what it says on Zoom. And so I'm just reading. Sorry, Dave. I just got dumped. I got too formal. I, I, got, I got way too formal. Um, Want to throw it back to Connor, Sam, and Dave to see, one, whether or not you've seen Ever After before or whether this was your first time watching this. And two, what are your reactions, either revisiting or seeing this for the first time? I had seen this before and enjoyed it. I haven't seen it in a very long time, so revisiting was fun. And I think for the first time, Cinderella made sense because there were so many things in the the traditional Cinderella story where you like, like, but uh, but but not you didn't see that you didn't get that. So uh, it's it's nice when someone takes time to to really flesh it out, and I uh, appreciated that the the second or third time around, I guess. And the framing of the movie is the great great granddaughter of Danielle de Barbarac telling the story and essentially being like inviting she, at the beginning of the movie, she invites the brothers Grimm into her home, her like huge palatial Duchess home. And are like, ah, I see you've created this character Cinderella or like you, you're retelling this old folktale about Cinderella, but I actually want to clarify that she did exist and her name was Danielle de Barbarac and she was my great great grandmother or whatever. And also so, her pulling out the the glass slipper to the brothers grim astonishment saying to themselves so the story is true. Yeah, as it like where she could have just taken the shoe right off her foot and been like this is Cinderella. And then yeah, also like, begins the story saying uh what is it like uh how should I put it? What is it that you folks always say? Once upon a time. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that's uh, Jean Moreau, or I don't know, some like classic French uh, actress who's got this like raspy, nice narrative voice. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up, Sam, uh, as in this sort of filled in some gaps about like kind of what, what the Cinderella story is all about. And I think it does in an attempt to kind of ground it in history, even though it takes definitely some liberties with historic accuracy. All right, Connor, Dave, uh, was this your first time seeing Ever After? It was. I actually had never heard of this movie until you suggested it. So this was totally brand new. And um, yeah, I thought it was fine. I There were definitely there were some parts that I thought were interesting. I don't know if I have anything like overly negative. I guess it just kind of like washed over me. And I was like, oh, okay. That's Drew Barrymore in a Cinderella late 90s. Uh, interpretation. So I like not, that not, letting it wash over you because it it yeah it it definitely um, might either lull one to sleep or just let visions of France, the French countryside just wash wash right over you. Uh, it was really nice, and I saw in your notes that this was sounds like mostly shot in France, which um, was just cool because I feel like. I don't know, nowadays it'd be like a um, studio, but it's cool. Like, oh, we're actually in France on these castles in the countryside. 
Um, so that was a neat touch. And I'm really curious to hear you know, other folks and kind of jump to the conversation for the points that they bring up. Well, it was my first time seeing it as well. Uh, I put this one off because I thought to myself, based on the cover and like the images I've seen in the movie, it's just sort of like, uh, you know, never judge a movie by its, its poster, I guess. Uh, but I, I did think to myself, like, okay, well, I know the Cinderella story. I can't imagine it's going to break very much new ground. And it looks like it's probably going to be the sort of like soft focus, soapy kind of like uh, interpretation that I'm not very interested in in, in a lot of cases. Uh, so went into this with um, lowered expectations. I thought this movie was great. I had a very, very fun time with it. Um, I think it's very much cut from the same cloth as something like your like Robin Hood Men in Tights or uh, Princess Bride. It's very like a very self-aware genre parody, but also wearing its heart on its sleeve and uh, doing a pretty good job of balancing all of it somehow. Yeah, like Christine, you, you were suggesting earlier, this is a movie that on paper probably shouldn't work and it probably shouldn't, but it does because it's just so winningly charming. And also just the hilarious tension of watching uh, largely American actors put on a British aff affect in a movie set in 15th century France or 16th century France. It's pretty hilarious. I love that uh, that Leonardo da Vinci is introduced as a character who's just sort of like this, like kind of like, like almost like mystic advisor, like he's Merlin or something. And it's very strange, but all of it comes together into a very, uh, a very fun package. I had a great time. Yeah, I think uh, their questions, what year it is, like I, I looked it up to just see Leonardo da Vinci's dates and it spans somewhere mid 14 to mid 1500s. So who knows, 15th or 16th. But the point is, is Leonardo da Vinci is shoehorned into this story. And it's not quite shoehorned because I guess it like, he, yeah, he becomes sort of, yeah, this not quite omniscient, but um, but but yes, the fa fairy godmother, uh, fairy godmother figure who sort of oh has this watchful eye and helps Danielle get to the final ball and really plays some pivotal roles in some uh, dramatic moments. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed watching this, Dave. Yeah, I to reiterate, the world did not need another Cinderella movie. Although reading reviews of this movie, a lot of reassessments of this movie came out when the newer Cinderella came out, starring um, the Amazon one. Uh, it's uh, Lily uh, Lily James, I think. And people were like, well, "Did the world need another Cinderella?" Like, I mean, like ninety in the nineties, there are two Cinderellas. There's Ever After, and there's Brandy's Cinderella. And I feel like those two are amazing. And then the world doesn't need any more. <laughs> um, well, but the animated one. You need Gus Gus. I'm sorry. I, I, I cannot lose this mouse. Well, sure. I mean, yes, the animated laid the foundations, but I'm saying for live action reintroductions, like Brandy Cinderella is iconic. And then Ever After takes another spin or takes another uh, version on. And then after that, you don't need it. But anyhow, I think let's talk about some of the performances in this movie, because I think as Dave was alluding to, and that I really was thinking about is that each of the performances really keep this movie afloat. Um, and yes, you've got a lot of American actors playing <laughs> or using British accents to play French characters. Uh, some may be more successful than others. Were there any performances that folks enjoyed the most or characters that really stood out because of the way that they were presented? Melanie Linsky, without a doubt, Jacqueline. I this was such a breath of fresh air. And you know, I've seen this movie before. So like I knew what to expect, but I just haven't thought about it in a really long time. And to finally have and I mean, even with um Marguerite and Angelica Houston, like having their family dynamic be more like a family and like not the evil stepsisters and having someone that's actually like on Danielle's side, which can I just pause for one second? Danielle as a name in what time period are we talking about? I have the same problem I do as Paul and fucking what's his name? Paul uh, Huh? 
Paul Atreides in uh, Paul Atreides and then Duncan Idaho. Fuck that in Dune. Like, what? Uh, I have the same problem. Danielle. Okay. But but Jacqueline, I, I loved her a lot. Do you think Danielle is, uh, like, not time appropriate? Time period appropriate? To be honest with you, I, I have an, an actual clue. But it just feels very much like I knew a lot of Danielle's growing up. So it feels like 80s and 90s to me. It's like Judy or something. Like yeah. <laughs> 16th, 15th century Judy probably didn't exist. Yeah. Um, I totally agree, Sam, though. Melanie Linsky is so fun to watch. Um, because she's sort of as she, her character is introduced, she's one of the two stepsisters. Uh, Marguerite is, I would say, the favored one to, of the mother, Rodmilla, and essentially is pushed by her mom to be the one that the prince should marry. And then Jacqueline is sort of in, quietly in the back, and then really helps out Danielle when uh, things are when essentially she's beaten by her mother and then prevented from going to the ball. Danielle like is, or Jacqueline is the one who comes in and really helps her. But Melanie Linsky is such a wonderful performer in pretty much everything she's in. She'll take any movie and just elevate it. And it's always sort of this like knowing quiet, but really, really uh, sort of piercing glare she just this knowing uh focus she has and she plays really really nuanced characters that from the outset seem very quiet and composed and then she's that like bite and fire in uh inside of her i sort of can't believe i'm gonna say this but like melanie linsky drew barrymore and kira knightley are such like mouth actors that sometimes maybe it's distracting i mean kiera for sure is a mouth like the 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 quivering lip um but yeah maybe yeah how about some like like how about some other performances what did we uh what other ones uh stood out they're kind of all good like, I think everybody's really kind of bringing an A-game to this movie, or at least very much understands the tone of it. Barrymore is, you know, layered and complex. Uh, she has humor and vulnerability and uh, capability and confidence, but is also capable of vulnerability and really really does a good job. Actually, kind of, I, I, a lot of people I saw online really uh, hating her English-French accent, but I, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty all right. Um, Doug Ray Scott does a good job of playing this sort of like aloof prince, I think. Like, I, th- I think his character probably wouldn't have worked for me as well if he didn't bring that characterization to it. Um, and Angelica Houston is just, you know, a house on fire in this movie. She's fantastic in everything I've seen her in, but this is, uh, this is really up there because, uh, she is, you know, villainous and dismissive, but also, uh, there are moments where you get a glimpse of uh, an inner life to her that is more complicated than that, which I really appreciated. She does this left eyebrow raise of that just can take down an entire room without <laughs> saying a word. <laughs> and I think only Angelica can do that. She's incredible. Yeah. And, uh, and truly like pitch perfect for this part. Yeah. I think it's the relationship between the relationships between the characters that I think is this movie's biggest strength. Um, Sam mentioned like actually kind of feeling like a real family, like with people kind of have their own initiatives, own ambitions, own dreams, own goals, own fault. Like everybody feels surprisingly, um, you know, well thought out, which was kind of a nice surprise when I thought this was kind of, Oh, you know, all right. Like I I know the story, they're going to fall into the archetypes and stereotypes, but, um, sorry if you heard my dog doing laps around the house. (laughs) Um, but no, I really, I really think the characterization, and you know how they play off of each other, especially Danielle and Jeff Houston. I think it's a really strong and really interesting relationship. Yeah, and Connor, really great chemistry between everyone too. They all play off each other really well. Yeah, and I think going back to mentions of Drew Barrymore's performance, I I always love Drew Barrymore, uh, but I think that sometimes. She, she doesn't necessarily get typecast per se, but I think that sometimes I think the range, the strength of her range is not showcased 
in a lot of movies that she has been in. And I think something that I really was thinking when I was rewatching this, and as I said, I've seen this a billion times, but I was really reminded of how wonderful watching her is in this movie. And as you said, Dave, that there, there's this believable vulnerability, but also intense strength. And watching her play off the energy, especially of Angelica Houston, uh, and how her interactions with her stepmother change over the course of the movie. And as she's trying to figure out, there's a point at the end where she's like, was there ever a moment, a point in your life that you ever cared for or like loved me? And then of course, Angelica lands the classic line, how could anyone love a pebble in their shoe? Which is like so harsh. Um, but you really see both of them like, these, yes, the antagonistic relationship that just tears apart Danielle, but also there are moments where she's fighting either her mom or her sisters, and there's this fire inside of her. And like, it's really, I think, a great performance and really believable that she'd be pushed to, to the extreme, to the extremes that showcased in her performance. Also, just especially in that scene, just a strong character writing. Like, uh, I mean, there's that that moment where, yeah, at this confrontation, this is after the whole debacle uh, where she's exposed as, uh, you know, posing as a, a, a someone of nobility, but is a, a peasant. Uh, and then a prince tells her off, which I was just like, oh, my God, I was shattered. But um, that's are you talking about the ball? Yeah, yeah. Which How well, we dare you address me in such an informal manner? Right, it's, right. Oh, my God. Yeah. That, but after that. that, when she's talking to uh, to Angelica Houston, her uh, her stepmother, and is saying like, there was there was the one it was like the the one thing that you really denied me, and I expected it was going to be like oh uh, like you know the the love narrative like her opportunity to like you know be with the prince or whatever. But then it's way more humanizing. It's you know it's ultimately no, I wanted a mother. Like th- I'm I'm bigger than I'm not a Cinderella that's defined by my love of the prince. I have depth of character, which is really cool, and uh, I think. Barrymore really fills out the range of, uh, as you said, the range of a character that dynamic really well. But it's it's also a really well written character. I think it's my favorite Cinderella adaptation that I've seen. And there's another back and forth too between Drew Barrymore and Angelica Houston that, when we're talking about well written characters, really struck home for me. Uh, it's a moment where uh, Danielle asks the stepmom did you ever love my father? And she says, I hardly knew him. But there's a moment where it looks like she's actually thinking about something else. And maybe there's more to that story than there had been previously. And it was just so brilliant. That's a great scene. And it also reveals, like I was uh, reading just like a quick review in which the writer had brought up the framework or like situating this in the time period in which women essentially either had to, essentially had to marry uh, and that would sustain the family. I mean, you know, you've got those themes in Austin too, um, but this is, you know, earlier than that period. But the idea that like the patriarch of this estate has died, Angelica's character has just married him they have three daughters, they have no sons. And it's essentially like, it's life or death, essentially, for one of her daughters to get married. Now, there were alternatives. <laughs> she did not necessarily need to force Danielle into servitude. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but there are insights into the real world threats and dangers of this society that women were facing. And Another, I think we've touched on kind of the way that the that the story reshapes the Cinderella narrative. And a key part is that she first, well, her first encounter with the prince is the prince is, is like running away from home because he doesn't want his responsibilities. It's a fucking like a Spider-Man, like <laughs> with, with power comes not, uh, with power comes What's the Spider-Man one? With great power comes great responsibility. Great responsibility, yeah. This one is with great power comes great, or obligations, or like 
particular obligations. Anyhow, With great power becomes like leisurely like ownership of the land. <laughs> it's yeah, I mean yes, uh, and we'll get into how like how successful or not this movie's uh, sort of critique of like feudal France is. But anyhow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danielle first meets the prince when he's running away from home because he doesn't like mommy and daddy and he steals one of the proper or like the DeBarbarak's horses and is running and then Danielle sees him and thinks he's a thief so she like hits apples at him and then realizes that he's the prince and apologizes but then their real sort of formal introducing once Danielle is when Danielle goes to court to essentially buy back a servant that was sold to the crown. Um, and so she dresses up as her mother, as a, who was a courtier, to uh, and uh, uses the money that Henry actually gave her after he apologized for uh, stealing the family's horse. It's like hush and money, And she dresses yeah. up in this courty courtier or courtesan's uh disguise to go and get one of the uh one of the servants of the family back and that's really showing when she sort of enters this society for the first time it's not like in the original cinderella where word gets out about the ball and cinderella just wants to go this is actually a story in which she has this distinct like storyline of like wanting to support the people that she cares about and works with and uh, is fighting for the liberation of her, you know, fellow peasant or whatever. And uh, so that really launches the whole story um, and really reflects on her ideals, her ideals of, of, you know, and then, yeah, her, I guess, yes, her ideals of overcoming class divides and having the prince recognize all of the privilege that he has uh, in their dialogue that comes after. But anyhow, that's how we're introduced to to her as a character and how she ends up meeting Prince Henry. And just also like all the dialogue exchange in that like the second meet cute after the uh, apple throwing incident. Yeah, basically her being like very critical of like, yeah, like he's saying something effective like, Oh my, you're such a walking contradiction. So like some, you know, very half-hearted pickup line. And she's like, well, so are you, dude. Like you own all this land, but you don't take any pleasure in like tending to it. Um, and you you treat your servants as though they're, you know, objects. And yeah, she's very confrontational about the whole thing, which is really cool. She does. Yeah, she calls him out on his bullshit and pretty much calls him out throughout the entire movie. As you've said, Dave, she calls him out in his complete lack of uh, concern, right, for anyone else that, or anyone beneath him in social status and, you know, the people that are actually working the land that is is within his kingdom. She calls him out for lots of, lots of, calls him, she gives him a whole, like, treatise on education and the value of education, everything. So she really uh, is, is, in many ways, more worldly and intelligent than, than he is. Yeah. I mean, I guess, what do we think about Henry and what do we think about Doug Ray Scott's Henry? I'm kind of on the fence. I like, yeah, I thought it was like, he's good for the role, but like, what do we think about his performance? I think he grew on me as the, the movie went on, but being like confronted with him again, I was like, and by the, by the time they meet up with like the the group of smugglers, I was like, yeah, you know, okay, I guess. I think he's like probably the least interesting part of the movie, and for me, a aspect of it that really, I think, sunk it, <laughs> or just like like just kept um, having me get disengaged. I don't know. It's like, oh, I don't want to marry the Spanish princess that my mommy and daddy want me to marry. Uh, and then when he comes like, I'm going to build a university and everybody can read. It's like, get a fucking opinion for yourself, dude. I don't know. Yeah, he's just like kind of an impulsive man child who is too sheltered within the castle, which I think as far as character writing makes sense. Like, I'm sure all of those dudes were exactly that way. 
Um, whether we necessarily want him for Danielle is maybe another question. Well, and I think similar to like when George R. R. Martin asked, like, well, what was Aragorn's tax policy once he became king after defeating Sauron? Like, how did Danielle actually influence court? Like, I don't know. It's just like, what does the next like 30 years of his reign look like? Do the, does the peasant, I mean, the French Revolution still happens. That's Assumedly, all of their descendants are killed except for this one lady who somehow manages to hold on to all these possessions in this mighty castle. I'm um, so glad you brought that up, Connor, because yes, she, Danielle clearly didn't make enough changes within the castle walls because you've got the French Revolution coming a couple centuries later, and that shit was just tearing it all down. Uh, but then you've got the Duchess that still has, you know. And I don't think it was in her power to change. Like, I'm not putting the, the I'm not laying the blame <laughs> of the French Revolution on Drew Barrymore. Uh, but it, she deserves it. And here's why. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I did have a problem. So at the very end, when the Queen is like, we're going to like strip you of your title and your land and then send you to the Americas unless someone will speak for you. And Danielle's like, I'll speak for her. And I'm the princess now. I'm married. And then what happens is they end up becoming servants just like she was. But the whole fucking thing that she had been saying this entire time was like, your country is run by commoners. It's run by peasants and servants and you need to treat them better. So then it was just like, Oh no, I just really wanted to, to get out of servitude in my family. Like it just really pissed me off actually. That's traitor. Yeah, that part, no. yeah, part of it is very classist and does not stick the landing. Yeah, I, I agree on that front. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's definitely, I think, a big question by the end is like, what is this movie actually saying? Not to really want more from this movie than I should like, but the movie does present itself in some ways as this sort of like class critique. And therefore, if we're to evaluate it, on the like on that level by the end it deflates definitely not only the treatment of the stepmother and the sisters or one sister marguerite um but also i was thinking about the idea that you have this character who she wasn't born in servitude she was part of the noble class and the because her mother so it's already it felt like the movie endows her with this sense of importance already because it's less of her transcending class boundaries and more just like returning to like the the state status uh, within which she was born. An ascension to her birthright, yeah. Exactly. So I think it sort of collapses when you really, uh, as Sam and everyone else has, has been indicating, if you really pick it apart uh it, it can't really hold itself hold itself up gosh and it's just like for a movie that i think does a decent job of like she brings up sound points and it's all like uh critiquing the social classes like it's very socially you know classes you know class is a huge part of her character and then to just drop the ball at the last minute it's like well then how is this different than any other cinderella adaptation? like for me that just really kind of takes away anything of like actual substance that this movie's trying to say and like kudos to like trying to go there but to just like fumble it on at the one yard line um it's just unfortunate to see it's a little tangential but it almost reminds me of uh the end of uh dark knight rises where Catwoman is this like subversive like cat thief who like is sticking it to like the upper class and then at the end she runs off a secret still alive billionaire bruce wayne to italy <laughs> Hey, a girl's got to do what a girl's got to do at the end of the sure, day, sure. you know? <laughs> you know, that should be a double feature. Disappointing movies with classes themes. I think, yeah, Doug Ray Scott, though, I, I appreciate that he does bring this, like, you know, dumbfoundedness to it. I think it is illustrative of that he is otherworldly, that he is sheltered within his, uh, you know, his uh, enshrined uh, royal connection and his, his privilege and everything and his, his ownership of everything. And I, I think it plays off in some, in some really great ways. Like when she uh, ultimately, when um, Danielle is sold off into slavery to the uh, 
clearly a uh, scumbag coded uh what is it pierre de la pew <laughs> for god's sake and he's just like such a sniveling like villainous worm of like a lecherous creep character so overtly that it's just hysterical but she overpowers him and then escapes and it's right as he's riding up and she just like walks out of this place having like rescued herself like it's an inversion of the damsel in distress whole thing of like you know she she walks out and basically it's just smiling to herself almost as if she's clapping her hands being like and that's that because she just solved it for herself and then he rides up and awkwardly says, like, oh, I was just uh, going to rescue you. And she's basically like, yeah, honey, that's uh, all right. We're good. Which I think is a subversion, too, of, like, you know, the whole, like, Prince Charming archetype is, like, in this version, yes, he has all that, uh, you know, connection to wealth and privilege and uh, and the upper crust of that caste system. But at the same time, he's, you know, a reflection of that. He's, you know, an uninformed goof who uh, needs to learn something from someone who's perfectly capable of taking care of themselves. And I think he does uh, learn. I, I think his character changes in some really compelling ways. Uh, he's quite unlikable through most of the movie. However, and I think this some credit is to Doug Ray Scott's performance, but when he recognizes, so, I mean, the culmination really of the movie or the climax of the movie is really when her stepmother, Rodmilla, finds out that she has been in, uh, in disguise and pretending to be her mother uh, and is actually creating competition with Jacqueline in winning the, f- the hand of the prince. And Jacqueline thinks that she's going to be the one to get proposed to. And Rodmilla thinks that as well. Sorry, I keep mixing them up. Marguerite, <laughs> pardon me. Marguerite is really being pushed by Rodmilla to be the one to win the favor of the prince. And rumor is spreading throughout the palace that it's this Comtesse de Lancre, who is uh, Nicole de Lancre, who is really the one that the prince is eyeing. And Rodmilla gets angry. She's like, who is this? And then finds out that actually it's Danielle in disguise. So then once all that blows up, Rodmilla throws Danielle into the cellar and is like, we're going to the ball. Peace out. You can rot in hell. So the climax is when Leonardo da Vinci comes back to the palace and we'll talk more (laughs) about him and helps Danielle escape, get a beautiful dress. And he makes her wings with which I think this, this line is so cheesy, but I like I get chills every time I think about it. When she's like, I've been basically, I've been a fraud and uh, how, like, essentially, how can a bird and a fish, how can a bird ever love a fish? And then Leonardo da Vinci says, then I have to, then I shall make you wings to fly. And so he makes these these beautiful, uh, as someone described in a review I read, Alanis Morissette wings. (laughs) And she shows up at the palace and she looks stunning and with these like, bedazzled jewels on her face. Anyhow, she shows up and Henry's like, oh, wow, you're here. I'm so glad. I thought you were going to be married off to a Belgian. And then she gets publicly exposed by Rod Milla as actually being Danielle de Barbarac, a mere servant for uh, the household. And Henry is like, how dare you deceive me? And he's pu- he feels publicly humiliated and wounded and basically scorns her publicly. And it is heavy shit. And I think that the movie does a great job of making the scene feel traumatic. And, but what I love, I, I sort of dig- go on this digression to say that it's through this that Henry does realize that he really fucked up. He really loves her. And that when he's first tested that he, he fucked up, he messed up and he, and I feel like Del Grey's performance shows how much he really loves Danielle and wants to earn back her trust and that he recognizes that that he he failed her, essentially, and he wants to be able to, like, essentially rise to the occasion to be with her. And that's when he tries to save her. And then she's like, fuck you, I already <laughs> saved myself. Also important to note that, like, all of these big events, like, whether that be her escaping to get to the ball after being locked in the cellar by her uh, her evil stepmother, Angelica Houston, or if it is uh, the prince coming to realize that, like, he's made a mistake. 
it's all influenced by Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> like, Leonardo da Vinci, like, the funny thing is, like, yeah, this movie goes out of its way to say, like, listen, you've heard the, at the beginning, you've heard the grim fairy tale story, that, that dark version of this. You've also heard the other story where it's, like, a fairy godmother. And neither of those were true. So, here's what really happened. Leonardo da Vinci showed up and broke her out of a wine cellar. <laughs> and then... Also, this is an amazing moment in screenwriting. Like, writing this down must have been so satisfying for the people that wrote this movie. Is uh, Later on, when he's talking to the prince, the prince is basically saying something to the effect of, like, listen, like, I, I, I'm from noble birth. There's no way that I can uh, transcend that and, and marry a commoner. And they get to write this in a screen, the screenplay, the line, Leonardo da Vinci, quote, horse shit, <laughs> which is amazing. He gets some really good lines. Uh, there's another one where he's great. So one of Danielle's childhood friends who also works on the farm, who's a, an aspiring painter, is like obsessed with Leonardo and essentially goes to court to get Leonardo to help break her out of this the cellar mm-hmm. uh, on, on her family's estate. And so Leonardo shows up and all the servants are like, what are we going to do? And he's like, ah. So he pulls the bolts out of the door and they're like, oh, you're a genius and then he goes yes i will go down in history as the man who opened the door and <laughs> it's just some great little uh little sharp moments in there he also apparently famously painted the mona lisa on canvas which uh not quite the case right and then henry gets to like look at it uh and like take a peek at it and he says something like i feel i feel like she's mocking me sir but Leonardo, yes, and I, I feel like the movie, though, as absurd it is t- to like put Leonardo da Vinci in there as a character, I think it really works. I think that the actor who plays him has the most tender energy, which is just what you need for like a fairy godmother. Uh, he seems mm-hmm. believable as you know Leonardo da Vinci with the full white beard and the cute old cap, but also he really. He's just sort of this watchful eye who cares about Danielle so much and also is just playing around with his own inventions. There's a wonderful scene where Danielle is is like rooting for truffles with a pig and then sees the river and is like, I'm going to go for a swim. And I love the shots of her swimming at the surface of the water. It's a a really stunningly framed uh, moments in this movie. And she's just having this like time all to herself and then you see Leonardo da Vinci with these boat sh- wooden boat shoes trumpet along the surface of the water and then Danielle screams and he screams and there's some wonderful little slapstick comedy in there just to keep some levity it's a great Barrymore scream too she's very convincing in that moment yes yes so little moments like that and then as you've mentioned Dave it's really da Vinci who solves all the problems in the movie <laughs> talks to Henry about how we really fucked up and yeah calls henry out on his bullshit uh he helps danielle get to the ball and he then paints this uh the lesser known work of this portrait of danielle which i think you know it's like you know a nice little uh painting but yeah i mean i guess the last thing i was wondering about which i think we already touched on a little bit was i the movie definitely wants to be a feminist cinderella I would ask the crew by 2022 standards, how does this hold up as a feminist narrative and storytelling of Cinderella? Honestly, yeah, I think that it is. It's coming from a guy. um, So, you know, (laughs) I think it's a grain of salt. But uh, yeah, I think um, it really aims for it. I think it's hard to tell a story where it's inherent that women are in competition for a man uh, in a time when, you know, uh, marriage is an essential avenue of, of advancement for women, but um, if you're going to tell that story, then this movie does as good a job as you can do. I think she's very, uh, like I said before, very capable. Uh, she outshines both in intelligence and even strength. The Prince Charming of uh, Doug Ray Scott. She's a very complex character. Character uh, At the end, she does, uh, you know, in, in this movie's telling, uh, I guess, to a degree, take pity on uh, the people that have done her wrong, the women that have done her wrong, but at the same time, in a very uh, classist way, selling them into servitude as well, but uh, did an interesting job. 
yeah, I was surprised at how deep it tried to go, and generally, uh, I think until the end, how successful it you know hit those character moments and those thematic beats. There we have it. That was Ever After. I recommend this movie to anyone who hasn't seen it. It is just a yeah, a fun collection of characters. I do. I'm sorry. I do have one last question. Does anyone Please. have any favorite quotes from this movie? There's so many that are so good. I suppose I asked, so I'll answer. Yeah, I mean, I got, um, I, I've got a long list, but I want to see if some. I mean, I've already been like throwing out some quotes throughout. Are there any standout moments to other people? There's two that are really great to me, which is um, Drew Barrymore at one point calling someone an ill-mannered tub of guts, which is a real barb. It's got some like whiplash from that insult. That's a good one. But also there's another really great moment where the prince is uh, storming into the king and queen's uh, bedroom and he their bedchamber and he, he throws back their bed curtains and he goes to wake them up. And the king waking like in his waking from a dream is just mumbling to himself off with his head. Which is like a knockdown drag out line. I was dying in my living room with that line because it's just such pitch perfect like genre parody. The king and queen are a great uh, sort of rom-com old married couple. And you could totally see just like a mid-90s. It felt like almost like a either like a Nora Ephron or like kind of a hair when Harry met Sap. You know, when they like interview all the old we we I feel like we (laughs) talked about this in our episode of um whatever. I'm I'm going on a tangent. Anyhow, they feel like one of those old couples that are interviewed in When Harry Met Sally. Um, the line where they're talking about marriage with him and he's like, oh, divorce is for the English or only the English divorce. <laughs> um, pretty, pretty sick 17th, 16th century burn. <laughs> yeah, it's a deep cut. I also we- really liked the princess from Spain just weeping the whole time in like the most exaggerated way possible and then she turns around and just you know embraces the clearly like spanish commoner i not a quote but i loved it that was one where like my house has pretty thin walls and i was thinking to myself like oh man from the different room this might not sound i'm not using the tv for i'm watching a movie <laughs> but that, that was, was a really a- scene. That was such a, a bizarre, it was funny. It's such a bizarre scene of the just like, it just keeps going. It's like, it goes for so long that it becomes, um, that was definitely a LOL moment. Can I mention another LOL moment for me? <laughs> the beginning when the dad is like, all right, I'm off to court to go see someone or whatever, wherever he's leaving. And it's like, oh, he always does this. He turns around on his horse and waves. And he just slumps over and dies. <laughs> he always, no, it's, he always waves at the gate. It's tradition. It's tradition. <laughs> he just he fucking, fucking slumps over. <laughs> it's, especially I'm because you see him saddling up and like, you can tell something's up with his right ar- left arm and he's like, oh, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> this, uh, this movie chugs. I mean, maybe Connor, you don't agree because you're like, I basically let it wash over me. But I will say, as far as like scenes go, I wouldn't say there's necessarily a wasted scene. It seems like everything is very intentional and it begins with the father having a heart attack about 30 <laughs> seconds into the movie and dying. It's like, and we're off to the races. This it's very economical, yeah. It's begun. It's very economical. How shocked is everyone else? Or at least uh, at least Connor, you were seeing it for the first time as well. How shocked were you by that punch to the face? I was, uh, my jaw dropped. Um, Alyssa was, yeah, she was kind of coming in and out as I was watching it. Uh, we were just both in the room for that moment. And then we were just like, what the fuck was that? Like, just out of nowhere, um, just decking her. This is Danielle um, uh, rearing back at one point and decking Marguerite yeah. right in the jaw. And then, like, a nice chase sequence through the house. Yes. Uh, I mean, she's a, it's a very physical performance for Drew Barrymore, uh, it, which I would not true. expect from a Cinderella story. And then when she's, like, <laughs> has, like, the, the knight or the, the sword right to the the Le- Pepe Le Pew guy. When she like, carries Prince Charming around at one yeah. point. Yeah. She goes, my father was a swordsman and I will cut, I could cut you from navel to neck or to nose. And oh, he loved it. it. And he, and it he loved it. Wonderful. 
Yeah. I, it seems so like he scary. loved it. He's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Perfect for that character. Yeah. Um, but yes, definitely physical performance. The dress is a very fraught object in the movie. So the punch is brought about because Marguerite wants to wear uh, Danielle's mom's dress to the ball. And that essentially is the only thing left of Danielle's dowry or whatever, which is also back to our point, like mm-hmm. another clue as to the fact that Danielle was, you know, supposed to inherit this entire estate and she is of nobility and she's like oh this like priceless dress and glass slipper shoes that are like probably worth thousands of pounds or whatever uh or not pounds whatever the french francs um but um and yeah and then and then she says i would rather die a thousand deaths than to see that selfish cow in my mother or thousand deaths to see that something something in my mother's dress and then the rod miller throws her in the in the cellar and is like we can arrange that or basically some shade at danielle being like if you want to die a thousand deaths be my guest throwing I, in the cellar is the first step to it <laughs> i think it is selfish cow verbatim which is like selfish another one of those cow. like man these digs keep coming i think my favorite line is and I think about this line all the time when I'm making breakfast, when Marguerite screams, I said I wanted four minute eggs, not four one minute eggs. And <laughs> it's just a, yeah, a wonderful little line there, but, oh yeah, there's another one. Uh, Rodmilla has some real zingers when she goes to Jacqueline and she says, Jacqueline, dear, do not speak unless you can improve the silence, <laughs> which is like really uh, harsh. And then, the I'm only here for the food it was like brought back as like a total zinger when Jacqueline like basically helps her mother go down, which is and the Jacqueline really... horse guy thing. The horse. Oh my god, what the buffet was that? horse scene. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. It's you gotta folks, you just gotta watch it to believe it. There are a lot of moments that just work. Um so yeah, I won't explain the horse buffet, but you should watch Ever After and you will know exactly what we mean when we say horse buffet. The horse buffet? Nay, when you like braise. Oh my God, he's got a carrot. It's amazing. And then, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's really wonderful. Um, well, yeah, folks, Ever After, Drew Barrymore. I'm really proud of her. She got the Drew Barrymore show, which I think I mentioned some episode that I was like obsessively watching. I haven't been watching it lately anymore, but I'll go back on YouTube and watch a couple segments here and there. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? You'd be hard pressed to find a better Cinderella adaptation. Although I do love the animated one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a classic. Uh, We didn't get to talk about Toby Jones, but Again, watch it to believe it. He plays the like like court spy and Rod Miller's like fake flirting with him to get him to do her bidding. And it's it's pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, 1998 Ever After, go watch it. So that was that. And check us out, out on all the socials, on Instagram. Connor, why are you laughing? <laughs> that transition... <laughs> Was as smooth as butter on the horse buffet. Okay, <laughs> it, it was. It was just like, and that was that. And I guess it was. <laughs> like that, it, it was. Yeah. Maybe that's our, yeah. That could be the new end of uh, end of episode. That was that. Yeah, that was <laughs> and never <that>. after. <laughs> oh well. Oh, but to conclude with a line from the movie, when the Duchess says, "And they lived happily ever after." But the important thing is that they lived and then the movie ends, which is a really beautiful line. And um, yeah, it, so it's also after the scene before that, where it's the last time we see the two of them together, where, she, where he says, and uh, and we'll live happily ever after. And she's like, wait, who said that? And he's like, hmm. I don't know. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's like a Futurama joke. It's so good. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Check us out on Instagram. Check us out on Twitter. I don't know. We don't tweet. We're so happy to be part of Movie John uh, Podcast Network. Check out all those amazing other podcasts. Write us an email, please, for the love of Rodmilla, Baroness Rodmilla de Ghent. 
um, please write us an email and we will read it and answer all your questions. So we are going to have a new theme next time you listen to us. So catch us later and have a good whatever, folks. This has been a movie job.